I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It was 2013, and 36-year-old Simon Smith was in his apartment in Toronto, sitting in his living room, looking out the window, and spitting into a vial. I did 23andMe because I was just very curious. I thought the technology was cool, and I wanted to find out more about my biology and then take any necessary actions related to my health accordingly. 23andMe is a DNA analysis kit. You've probably heard of it. You may know someone who's done it. You spit into the vial, send it off to a lab so they can analyze your DNA. Now it's one of the most popular DNA testing kits around. But back in 2013, direct-to-consumer DNA tests were still pretty new. Simon was an early adopter. I'm a little bit of... uh a hypochondriac, plus a little bit of a technophile. He got his results after a few weeks. Some of them he saw coming. I'm lactose intolerant. Uh, No duh. (laughs) But other things were strange. Simon knew his grandfather had died from a heart attack. This is why he'd taken the test, and he'd expected to see a high risk for heart disease. But he didn't. Not only didn't I, I had a a lower-than-average risk of these diseases, including diabetes, that seemed to run in mom's family, and that was surprising to me. And that's when he looped in his sister, Leora Smith. Yeah, when he got the results, he sent them to me and to our other siblings, and I guess I just thought it was luck of the draw. Honestly, I really didn't think that much more about it, and I don't think he did either. That was really it. I had a surprisingly better genetic health risk profile than I thought. Simon had signed up to learn about his health. But there's this whole other side to getting your DNA tested, finding your ancestry. There's this box you can check. And if you check the box, then people who are related to you can reach out to you. There's a warning when you check it, which basically asks, are you sure? Because... Someone might show up, and it might change your life. Simon checked the box. So you have a lot of fourth cousins. So you would go into the page in 23andMe with all these relationships, and you'd see like hundreds of people. And what happens is, in the beginning, everybody's like, oh my god, you're related to me, I'm going to reach out to you. And then everybody's like, all of a sudden, it starts to diminish, because you realize that there are so many people you're quote-unquote related to uh, that it, you can't possibly keep up with it all. So within a couple of weeks, he mostly stopped opening the messages. Until Lisa. And when I first got uh, Lisa's email, I really put it in that bucket of, here's another person who's contacting me and thinks we're related. But then I noticed that, in fact, according to 23andMe, we were very closely related and I had no idea who she was. Hey. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. 
Simon clicking that button would change the lives of everyone around him and connect him, his sister Leora, and their whole family to a little-known piece of history. This is a story that spans continents and decades, religious and political debates, asking, when it comes to our DNA, are there any secrets anymore? And should there be? For the Smith family, it started with Simon checking that box and getting an email from a woman in London, England, named Lisa. Dear Simon, I'm trying to trace my maternal grandfather, and I think we may share one as we've come up as possible first cousins. I think that means that one of our parents are full or half-siblings. Simon's sister, journalist Leora Smith, will take it from here. My brother forwarded the message to me and our other siblings, and we tried to make sense of it. We couldn't deny the DNA evidence. We were cousins. But we'd never heard of Lisa or her family. Her message continued. I've got no record of my mum's father. I assume he was in the UK in 1952. My DNA is 98% Ashkenazi Jewish, so he must have been Ashkenazi Jewish too. Our family is Ashkenazi Jewish. And my mom was born in the UK in the late 1940s, so pretty close to 1952. Lisa described what she knew about her grandfather. He was actually part of a pioneering assisted fertility program that resulted in the birth of my mother. But that totally lost us. Lisa seemed to think our grandfather had been the donor. We wondered, maybe he had? He'd never mentioned it. Lisa told us she was reaching out because of her mom. She would love to know more about him. She only found out about her real dad when she was 40, and there were no records, so she's got lots of unanswered questions. Does any of this sound like it fits anything in your family history? Lisa. We were floored. Even though the letter was puzzling, we knew we couldn't ignore it. But we were nervous about telling our mother. My mom, Adrienne, was 69 and had been incredibly close to her father. So what if she found out he had other kids? How would she feel? Would she even want to know? The next time the family got together in Toronto, Simon gathered us in one room and brought out the email. This is how my mom remembers it. I think Simon phoned me and said, we have something to tell you. And I was, oh my God. You know, what's wrong? First thing is, what's wrong? So Simon's sitting there and he says, okay, we think maybe you have a half-sister. Yeah. My siblings and I watched my mom go uncharacteristically quiet, absorbing this news that she might have a half-sister she knew nothing about. I know I wasn't distressed. I wasn't distressed. But I did feel intensely curious. And I did want to know more. I didn't want to shut it out and pretend it wasn't there. Just outside London, England, Lisa, my new maybe cousin, was sitting her mom down too. This is Lisa's mom, Carol. She, th- she said, come inside and have a glass of champagne. I said, no, 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 I'm cooking dinner. Come again. No, no, come in. I've got something to tell you. Have a glass of champagne. Well, I'm a bit of a sucker for a glass of champagne. So I said, oh, okay, fine. Don't tell me you're pregnant. No. Don't tell me, you know, it was like, what, 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 what? And she said, I found 
your half-sister. It was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's like, woo. You know, you, you, you're slightly sort of blown away. It's like something from outer space. Yeah, it's surreal. I think I was quite excited, quite overwhelmed. And yeah, I thought, oh my God, you know, maybe I'll find out who my biological father is. My mom and Carol processed this information separately, on opposite sides of the world. For Carol, this was the last piece in a story she'd known for a long time. She'd learned she was donor-conceived 20 years earlier. For her, finding us meant she may have finally found her biological father. But for us, this was a shock. How could it be that my grandfather, who lived a simple and straightforward life, had this child? We kept running through the scenarios, tossing ideas back and forth in emails and phone calls, pulling together everything we knew about my grandfather to try and figure it out. My grandfather grew up in the East End of London, England, a Jewish and immigrant neighborhood where tenement buildings lined the streets. My mom recalls the stories her aunts and uncles told. At that time in the East End, everything was, was Jewish factories, and so they would close early for Shabbat, and the men would go to the Schwitz, you know, to the Turkish baths or whatever it was. But they said, my dad would come home and scrub the stairs from the attic down to the kitchen and clean the kitchen for my grandmother on a Friday afternoon. And they said, always, you know, if he could do something for somebody that he would. My grandparents, who I call Nana and Papa, met in his family's living room in 1934. Both their mothers had recently come home from hospital where they'd become friends. One day, my Nana tagged along to tea time at his house, and by the end of it, he was walking her to the bus stop and asking her on a date. Two years later, he proposed. They were so young. She was only 17 when they met. But they never stopped loving each other with that sort of urgency. My Nana was a skilled artist and seamstress who dreamed of working as a clothing designer. She spent much of her working life sewing clothes in a factory where she stood for eight hours a day in mandatory high heels. My grandfather worked in a tailor shop. All day long, they worked on other people's clothes. Then, when they came home, they worked together on clothes for themselves. To me, their lives had always sounded like one of those sepia-toned movies. Things were hard, but they were happy. I think of Nana sitting at the kitchen table and sewing into the night and Papa standing there with the ironing board and the iron and steaming things into shape. I think of the sound of the machine. I think of... Papa always made a joke out of anything and always had us laughing. But I also think there were times um, when you were aware that things were difficult. He had his first heart attack when he was 38 and two more after that. And so he was told then that um, he shouldn't work, and he, that's the way it was then, you shouldn't walk. And he defied all that. He said, I'm, 
That's like a living death. I'm not doing that. And that's how he was. There wasn't money. There wasn't extra money or anything. But you didn't feel that in a way that you felt deprived because everyone else was actually in the same position. My grandfather died in his early 60s from his third heart attack. That's why my brother had expected to see a risk for heart disease in his DNA results. My grandmother lived into her 90s and wore a locket with my grandfather's picture in it. When she started losing her memory to Alzheimer's, she obsessively labeled everything in her house. After she died, we found a tiny ring box in her drawer that she'd labeled, a gift from my darling. When we opened it, the box was empty. She'd lost the ring, but we kept the label. My siblings and I ran through it all. Even though Lisa, in her email that started all this, hadn't said anything about an affair, of course we wondered. A secret family in England? You can't help your mind going there. But with a love story like my grandparents, it seemed totally implausible. As for him being a sperm donor, my grandfather's heart condition meant he spent a lot of time in hospitals. Maybe he befriended a doctor? Maybe he donated in hard times to make a little money? But that didn't line up. My dad was not well. He was not a well person. He'd been in hospital. Given my grandfather's poor health, it just didn't make sense that he would be recruited as a donor. But if my papa wasn't a sperm donor, and didn't have an affair. We figured it left just one option. Maybe us, trying to figure out how he'd fathered Carol, was all wrong. Maybe he wasn't Carol's biological father at all, which meant maybe he wasn't my mother's either. Maybe my grandmother had used a sperm donor too. All the uncertainties left my mom feeling strangely displaced. Like someone pulled the rug out from under her, and instead of the floor just being different, it was gone. So, you know, you just, you just don't know. You just, I think that part is a bit like being sucked down into a vortex because you really don't know, and you really can't put your finger on the not knowing. I, I, can't, I can't explain it. It felt like a glitch, a mistake, but it wasn't. In time, we'd learn that our history was being hidden from us on purpose. For months, our families emailed back and forth, but my mom and Carol never messaged each other directly. Then, finally, my mom sat down and wrote. Dear Carol, I suggested to Simon that it was time for us to write one-on-one, so to speak. Mixed emotions hardly begin to describe the way I'm feeling. I have, as I'm sure you do, a million questions. Her email was a hodgepodge of emotions, family history, puns, and questions. I really cannot believe that I'm writing to you, and I still don't know how to sort out my emotions, or even what I am feeling. Be well and have a thought-filled weekend. I know I shall. Love, Adrian. She pressed send and waited. Within hours, Carol responded in kind. 
An email with a rhythm and a sense of humor that felt strangely familiar. Then the messages started flying. My mom and Carol waking up early and going to bed late as they furiously wrote from inconveniently offset time zones. They shared stories and pictures of their fathers, of their childhood spent only a short subway ride apart. And then one day, they were ready to speak on the phone. They sat in their kitchens and heard each other's voices for the very first time. I can't really remember what we said. I know we kept talking over one another because we do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there was an instant connection. Really thinking about it, yes. I think there was an instant connection. You felt like you were talking to somebody you knew. How to even say, like, Carol just, we just clicked. I hope she feels the same way. <laughs> we just clicked. Soon, they were talking all the time. And when they missed each other, they left voicemails. My mom's answering machine is full of messages from Carol that she saved. First saved message. How are you, my sweet? I had hoped to share my lovely day with you, but obviously you're not in because you like working. Take care, my sweet. Love you loads. Bye. We have to tell you, I nearly got blown to pieces today. We have the most horrendous weather here. Gale force winds, but I'm okay. So I will speak to you tomorrow or the next day. Um, I have been waiting for a little email. I have had nothing from you for at least 48 hours. Hopefully you've not disappeared down a big drain. Love you loads. Bye. Together, they tried to piece together their histories, pulling tidbits from one another that they hoped might somehow combine into answers. One day, a conversation with Carol jogged my mom's memory, brought back an image she hadn't thought of since she was a little girl. When I was about nine years old, I found uh, my parents had all the newspapers from VE Day and everything, and I found this newspaper article, and for some reason, I can't even remember the article very well, but something made me go to my mum and I said, am I adopted? And she said, no, you're not adopted. I never saw the article again. Do you remember what the article was that made you think you were adopted? No, I really don't. But something about the moment stuck with my mum and settled her. For the next few months, their phone calls sparked more memories, little clues. Soon after, Carol remembered something else. Hi, my sweet, I'm home. I got your message, I was in the middle of Brighton. I don't think you've got mine. Call me, just call me. I don't care what time of night it is. Call me. Love you. She remembered her mother mentioning a clinic in the West End. And that's what started everything off. Carol also remembered the name Barton, though she wasn't quite sure who or what it was. This is my brother again. I remember we had a bunch of clues that led to some Google searches that led to some answers. So we had heard, I, I, I remember that we had the name Barton. So we just plugged that in uh, and started coming up with different articles. And we got a hit. There was a Dr. Mary Barton. And once we found her, we realized our story was part of a secret much bigger than our family. 
Casey here. Coming up, Leora meets someone with a genetic mystery of his own, someone who helps her piece together her family's history and the role Dr. Mary Barton played in it more than 70 years ago. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, you... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1940s, struggles with fertility were barely discussed privately, let alone publicly. At the time, most doctors blamed infertility on the woman. Relatively few studied sperm. Only a handful of doctors in all of England admitted performing artificial inseminations, and two of them were women. Dr. Mary Barton was outspoken among them. When my brother Googled Barton, he found an article about Dr. Barton, and my sister found a documentary film by a man who'd been conceived at one of Dr. Barton's clinics. The filmmaker, Barry Stevens, spent years trying to figure out who his biological father was. Hi, I'm Barry Stevens. Barry traveled to all the places where Dr. Barton had offices. It was in a district of London called Harley Street, where high-priced private medicine goes on, still does. They had various addresses, fairly grand houses, uh, although I don't think they really had a lot of money. I was conceived in a place that is now the Chinese embassy to, to, Great, to Great Britain. Barry tried to figure out who Mary Barton's sperm donors were because he knew one of them was his father. He found transcripts of interviews Barton had given and panels she'd spoken on. Dr. Barton said she worked with her husband, a scientist named Berthold Wiesner, and that she would consult with the couples while Wiesner found the donors. We figured the donors had to come from Wiesner's circle of friends, or circle of, of, of people he knew or had met professionally, which, that's not that easy to put together, but there are like, I don't know, 100 names that, you know, I dug out of various sources. Barry wondered how he'd ever narrow down the list. In interviews and writing from the time, Dr. Barton talked about the large number of donors, how each donated just a few times. Mary Barton testified to what was unbelievably called the Eugenics Society, because people still did believe in eugenics. And she says, um, oh, most of my uh, donors are... Uh, middle class, if one must put it that way. And she says, policemen, journalists. And she lists a bunch of them. She said, I never use one, you know, donor more than once or twice. It's all nonsense. It's, <laughs> I, maybe she really believed that, but it, it, it wasn't true. Barry knew from his own DNA test that his father was Eastern European and Ashkenazi Jewish. He also bore a striking resemblance to Mary Barton's husband, Bertold Wiesner, who was Eastern European and Jewish. He had a theory 
To prove it, he tracked down Wiesner and Barton's son and asked if he'd do a DNA test. And once we had that, it cracked it open. The test revealed they were half-brothers. Bertold Wiesner was both of their fathers. Over time, Barry found more people who'd been conceived at Dr. Barton's clinics. 10 people, then 20. More than half of them were his half-siblings. He made two films about his discoveries, called Offspring and Biodad. Barry eventually discovered that Wiesner was the clinic's most prolific donor, fathering up to 600 children. But what really held my attention was Barry's face, because it was my mother's face. He had her nose, the crease between her eyebrows. Do you see it in a picture? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just think, I think blue eyes, um, I guess skin color. And one thing led to another, and some, I remember reading a line somewhere saying that it's possible that he's got a thousand grandchildren or something to that effect. And I think then we just started calculating the odds and we're like, okay, so mom lived just outside of London. And that was around a time when she would have been conceived and, and, and then born. And we just started putting all the pieces together and it started to feel like a pretty airtight case. Although I think also there was a sense that this couldn't possibly be true. We reached out to Barry. It turned out he lived just a 20-minute drive from my parents in Toronto. Soon, he and my mom were having tea at her house. Then they were spitting into more vials, trying to figure out if they were related. And then we waited. On the day my mom's results came in, she sat with a picture of my grandparents beside her. In it, my grandparents are at their best friend's wedding. My nana is wearing her locket, and my papa's arm is draped around her. I just wanted them to be there. Maybe it seems silly when it's a picture, but it was really important to me to have them, to have them there in some way. She opened the results. Barry was her half-brother, Bertold Wiesner, Dr. Mary Barton's husband, her biological father. And that's how I found out, for sure. I was uh, not related to my dad. To my dad, yeah. The results changed so much. It meant my mom had a biological father she didn't know anything about. We all had a medical history we knew nothing about. That we might have hundreds, even thousands of relatives. But there was one thing it didn't change. When you had like the final confirmation that you were not biologically related um, to Papa, did that change at all how you felt about him or your relationship to him? No, 
because you can't replace 69 years of knowing someone loved you. First of all, if he knew that I was donor-conceived, he didn't love me any the less for that. Would he have turned his back on me? No, why, why would I? I couldn't replace the love that I'd always felt from him. Why would I want to lose that? Having the DNA results, small mysteries about my mom's life seemed to fall into place. In our family, no one had ever hinted of anything unusual about the birth of my mom in 1945, or that she was anything other than her parents' first child. But it had taken a long time for my Nana to conceive. There is a small niggle there because they were married for nine years before I was born. My mom had never thought much of it. Neither had I. We know how traumatic it is when you anticipate it, that you will be pregnant and you aren't. And Yeah, I can imagine that for them it was their dream. But even as some things fell into place, the truth raised so many questions my mom wished she could ask her parents. I would really like to know how they knew about this clinic. Who told you about this person? You know, was it your GP who told you? Like, I really want to know the, the nitty-gritty because it wasn't like now, you know, you, you can find out anything you, if you're looking. Was it a friend who told her? Was word of mouth? Were the bombs falling when you went up to London to get impregnated? You know, they could have gone five, six times for all I know. You know, was my dad holding your hand? Were you sitting in a waiting room by yourself? You know, just what did you think? Were you afraid? Because women knew so little about their bodies, really. I mean, my mum told me that when she was giving birth to me, she was not sure how I was going to be born. We don't have answers for any of this because my Nana and my Papa passed away long before my mom could ask. But Barry has talked to a handful of women who visited Dr. Barton, and there's one thing they all remembered. She told them to keep the procedure a secret. She must have told my grandparents the same thing, and they did. They had good reason to do so. The year my mom was born, 1945, Mary Barton and Bertold Wiesner published an article about their work in the British Medical Journal. It caused a shitstorm. This is Barry again. I mean, the House of Lords was up in arms. The Archbishop of Canterbury was up in arms. And the Parliament, I mean, there were inquiries. They were talking about criminalizing it. This is adultery. This is awful. This is playing with nature. This is all these things. In 1948, the Archbishop of Canterbury put together a religious commission which concluded that artificial insemination was a breach of marriage, wrong in principle and contrary to Christian standards. In 1958, a House of Lords committee said donor-conceived children should be considered illegitimate and framed artificial insemination with donor sperm as an offense against society. Even Dr. Mary Barton said in interviews from the time that it could cause emotional disturbance 
for families to know their donor's identity. Given all the controversy, it's no surprise that donors and doctors alike insisted on anonymity. One thing we still don't know is if Barton had any idea that her husband was donating most of the sperm. But if she did, that was even more reason to demand secrecy. Today, we know for sure that our family is part of this strange, little-known history of assisted reproduction, and that my mom is one of hundreds conceived through the same sperm donor. In nearly the same stroke, she's gone from two new family members, Carol and Lisa, to many, many more. Okay, so there's um, Barbara, Margaret, Elizabeth, Christine, there's Chris, there's Jocelyn. In the last five years, my mom has found more than 40 half-siblings. New relatives pop up all the time. My mom says there's always a bump a few weeks after Christmas when people get DNA tests as gifts. All of her siblings were conceived in England, but now they live around the world. Graham? Did you get Graham? No, I didn't get Graham. <gasps> oh my goodness. Graham's lovely. He's really lovely. My name is Graham. I was born in London in England in 1956. Oh, Malcolm. Malcolm's another one. And there's two potentials. My name is Barbara. I was born in the UK in 1950. And can you tell us what you call each other? Half is. Apparently, I invent, they told me, someone told me I invented it, but it was half is. Yes. <laughs> well, My name is Julia Denton Barker. I was born in Bedford, England, in 1949. My name is Christopher Pierman. I was born in Birmingham, England, in 1963. The Happies span decades in age. So far, we know that the youngest is 53 and the oldest is 76. My name is Jocelyn. I was born in 1949 in Blackpool in Lancashire. My name is Roger Ellis. I was born in Croydon, England in January 1953. I found out I was donor conceived as a result of a uh, DNA test I was given as a present. Somebody had given me an ancestry DNA test and I nearly didn't bother to do it because I thought I knew everything about my background. If you ask the Hafis what it felt like to discover they were donor-conceived, there's one word they use a lot. So I was deeply shocked. Uh, when I was told I was donor-conceived, I was shocked. My first reaction was shock. 48.5% Jewish, not possible. It just felt like it was an earthquake. I, I had absolutely no idea at all that I was donor-conceived. My biological father is Bertolt Wiesner, so... I'm still dealing with the shock, I suppose. I was shocked and disbelieving, but realised that DNA doesn't lie, even though many people do. And suddenly, many odd pieces of floating information did start to make some sense. With hindsight, it makes a lot of sense. When I look back at the relationship I had with, especially my father, but with both parents, I was uh, at first, of course, disbelieving, but actually quite quickly I came to the 
realization that this explained quite a lot about my uh, self that had always been, if not a pressing mystery, something of a mystery. The Hafis keep in touch on an overactive email thread, emailing each other multiple times every day. They have a whole protocol for welcoming new people. When someone gets a message on a DNA site from an excited new match, they let the other Hafis know. Then, the person who got the message responds, explaining their backstory carefully, sensitively. Some people who hear the story get excited. Most are surprised, and some never respond at all. Not everyone is interested in digging into the past. Where my mom dives in, her younger sister Geraldine, the only sister she grew up knowing, doesn't really want much to do with any of it. She's followed all our discoveries, but has no interest in doing a DNA test of her own. When my mom broke the news to her, at first, she didn't believe it. It was such a shock because she just she just came out with it. And so I was totally, totally shocked. And it, it, I don't even know if I asked many questions. I was just trying to absorb. It was a, a sort of like an out-of-body experience in a way. Um, I was shocked that she referred to them as her brothers and sisters and it made me feel a bit betrayed that, you know, I was her sister, nobody else. I need to understand your response when you heard about this. I mean, maybe you can tell us, like, have you done your own DNA test or do you plan to? No, and no, I don't. Is there any part of you that is a not doing the test because you're afraid? No, I don't want to know. I don't feel that I need to know. I'm who I am. My kids are who they are. My Aunt Geraldine is sure she's my papa's biological child. And the truth is that she and my cousins do look a lot like him. For her, that's enough. I have no desire to delve any further. If your mum is happy with her lot, that's fine with me. That's, it's her life, and she can choose to do anything she wants to do, and this is what I choose to do. I think it's an individual choice. You all have to do what you feel is right and what you want to do. I don't think that any of us have the right to tell anybody else what they should do with their lives. It's an individual choice. I don't ask her to love the idea or even like the idea. But the fact is that, again, this is who I am. I'm here because of this. Whether people want to know or not, with the advent of DNA kits, more and more people who might never have learned they were donor-conceived are figuring it out. And many of them are finding each other. As they do, they are organizing. 
Now, my mom, who might have been among the first donor-conceived kids in England, is part of a new political movement. Last year, my son and daughter-in-law bought a puzzle, a thousand-piece puzzle for my birthday. When I finished the puzzle, there were only 999 pieces. And there's a space in that puzzle. So I decided I would write to the company and ask. And then my husband, Jerry, he looked at the back of the box and there is a disclaimer on the box that they produce thousands of puzzles every day and they are not responsible if there's a piece of the puzzle missing. You have to live with the fact that this piece of puzzle is missing. And I thought to myself, this represents a donor-conceived child because there is that piece missing. You may not know that it's missing, but once you do know, it is your right to be complete. And that puzzle represents what is missing from your life when someone else prevents you from knowing that piece of you. My mom has plugged into an advocacy group called the Donor Conceived Alliance of Canada. The group is pushing for a ban on anonymous sperm and egg donations and calling for the long-term preservation of donor medical records. The group's director is 34-year-old Kevin Martin. I'm the co-founder of the Donor Conceived Alliance, an advocacy organization founded in 2018 to protect the rights of donor-conceived Canadians. I found out at the age of seven that my biological father was an anonymous sperm donor. And at the age of 31, I was able to identify my biological father through DNA testing. And since that time, I've been advocating for the rights of people like myself. Kevin says the people who result from sperm and egg donations, people like him and my mom, and I guess me, have never been at the center of policy discussions. His organization is trying to change that. Kevin's mom was inseminated in 1985 in London, Ontario. She was told her donor was probably a medical student studying at the university there. So, when Kevin was in his 20s, he requested a list of every Ontario medical student enrolled around that time and tried to detective his way to his bio dad, but couldn't. Then, two years ago, Kevin did a commercial DNA test. He immediately matched with a first cousin. A short Google search later, he found a picture of his biological father, who turned out to have actually been a law student. I finally had put a face to a name. You know, I, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and, you know, I just started crying because, you know, <laughs> I know who this face belongs to. I know some of his story. I know what land he walked on. And, you know, for my entire life, I didn't have that. I didn't have anything even a picture, and it's something that most people I know take for granted. And just to have that in my, in my possession after all those years, even if it was just a grainy, low-quality photograph at the time, you know, it was like gold. Sadly, the first picture Kevin found of his biological father was from an obituary. I have no idea how he, 
how he passed away. He passed away at a relatively young age, in his 50s, and it raises alarm bells for me. And it's information that, you know, I feel I should have access to. But unfortunately, with the way the regulations are set in the province of Ontario, I'm not able to legally access a death certificate that would provide me with that information. Now, Kevin is dedicated to changing the rules of sperm donation. The fight to access sperm and egg donors' records stretches back decades in Canada. In 1989, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's government created a royal commission on new reproductive technologies. Fifteen years later, the federal government passed a law that actually required sperm donors to provide non-identifying health history for their offspring. But it was shot down by the Supreme Court of Canada for overstepping into provincial jurisdiction. When it comes to donor conception, those records are not even considered as mine. They're considered to be my parents' medical records. And you have numerous cases, I should say, of people who are finding out their, their records were destroyed for all sorts of reasons. So donor-conceived people are being faced with the reality of this drastic revelation if they're discovering this information late in life. And then when they try to pick up the pieces, the records just aren't there to help them. Last year, Canada updated its regulations on assisted reproduction. Now, donors have to answer a questionnaire about their health. But the records are only preserved for 10 years. That means that a donor-conceived child, or their parents, would need to request that health history by the time they're 10 years old. As the ranks of people who know their donor-conceived continue to grow, their political voice is growing louder. Last year, donor-conceived people from three continents raised their concerns to members of the United Nations they called for a ban on anonymous sperm donors. Some people worry that changing the rules around anonymity will reduce donations and make it harder for people who need sperm and egg donors to have children. In Canada, it's already illegal to sell sperm and eggs. Only a handful of sperm banks here even accept donations. Most Canadians who do use donors import the sperm and eggs from the United States. So lifting anonymity could mean that fewer people would be willing to donate to an already scarce stock. But Kevin points out at this point, anonymity may be a myth anyways. Anonymity is absolutely impossible to guarantee in 2020. DNA testing websites have just made any promise of anonymity moot. That's number one. Number two, I think, it's a human rights violation to intentionally separate people from their biological origins in that way. What we're doing under the present system is we're creating humans on the basis that they will be denied half of their genetic identity. And I consider it a theft, and that doesn't have to happen. A few countries have actually banned anonymous sperm donation, including the UK and New Zealand. But in most countries, including Canada, it's still the norm. As for my family, we know we got lucky 
My mom was never supposed to know her donor's identity. The records of her conception have been lost, possibly destroyed, like those of many donor-conceived people. But unlike most people, we had Barry. We had answers to our toughest questions laid out in two documentary films. For my mom, having these answers, finding all these new half-siblings, has been overwhelmingly joyful. I think it's just the interesting people to be in touch with. It just makes me happy. <laughs> it just makes me... It's just comforting to have a group of people who you feel close to in an indefinable kind of way. I have to say, it's been fabulous. I'm, I'm you know, in my 60s, so I'm, uh, I've had a lot of surprises in my life. This is one of the best surprises I've had, I've had to say. Getting to know and liaise with other members of my new family has been really good fun and very interesting. So that outweighed any shock or upset, I would say, in the longer term. It's been a very positive experience for me. And now I can't imagine life without all my new brothers and sisters. Uh, I've met a lot of my half-brothers and half-sisters and some of their children. And it's been fantastic. My only sort of regret, really, is that I wish I'd found out 20, 30, 40 years ago. Still, for my mom, her relationship with her first halfie, Carol, holds a special place. She's a sister. She just feels like a sister. I think it doesn't matter that we didn't know one another for all those years. Of course we belong together. You know, of course we're related. And, and that's been a constant. It's a very warm, wonderful feeling to have her in my life. I'm very grateful. It's important because she's a, she is somebody in my life who has appeared much later in life, but there's a bond, there is um, a need, and there is an understanding between us that it's, it's important, it's, uh, it's special, we're very blessed. Even knowing how positive this experience has been for my mom, my mind still sometimes gets pulled back to my grandparents. Did you ever feel that like by digging into this, you were somehow either digging into something that you shouldn't be or like betraying them somehow by digging into a secret that they had kept for their whole lives? It's not their secret. It's my life. And I don't see why I don't have the right to ha be who I am. I'm not ashamed of it. I have no reason to be ashamed of it. They have no reason to feel shame that they chose this path. And I just feel I'm honoring their memory by saying you did this and I'm here. Mm -hmm. And I think by speaking and by being part of this, I'm perpetuating that everyone like me has the right to know, the right to probe, and the right to say, this is who I am. There's another reason my mom would have liked her parents to tell her about how she came into the world. I would love to be able to say, 
it worked out. We're okay. You know, you did a good thing. <laughs> I would like, to, it would be a great pleasure, I think, to be able to say that. To be able to say, look what you did. You know, because you could do that. We are who we are. That Doc was produced by Leora Smith and Allison Cook. It was edited by Allison and me, A.C. Rowe. For more about this story, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. There you can see photos of some of the halfies, including Leora's mom, Adrienne, with Carol, and another of Adrienne with filmmaker Barry Stevens, the man who helped solve the mystery. And I got to say, with that photo, I really see the resemblance that Leora sees between her mom and Barry. See it for yourself, cbc.ca slash docproject. Also, Barry is currently working on a new documentary film for CBC. It's called World's Biggest Family, and it's set to air on October 1st. Before you go, if you enjoyed today's story, please take a second to rate and review us if you can, wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And once you're done, the thing that really helps other people find us, if you would send today's story to a friend or family member, random stranger, whatever works. I'm going to send today's story to my sister because she is the one who insisted that my whole family get DNA tests. There were no surprises there, except that I am part Danish, which I don't think counts. So she's the one that is getting the podcast this week. Lucky sibling. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, Kevin Ball, Mark Apollonio, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer, this week with Jonathan Orr. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.